0: Hello and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Arnold Ventures, where I'm the Executive Vice President of Criminal Justice. Thank you all for your patience during the show's hiatus. I am all settled into my new role and am excited to be bringing you some new research. I should say up front that everything we say today, and on any episode for that matter, represents the views of myself and my guests and not necessarily those of our employers. Okay, let's dive in. My guest this week is Evan Rose. Evan is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Chicago. Evan, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Today, we're going to talk about your research on probation requirements and whether incarcerating people for technical violations of probation rules improves public safety. But before we get into all of that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic?
1: Absolutely. So I think of myself as a labor economist, which is an incredibly broad category. Maybe a better way to describe what I try to research is I'm interested in left-tail inequality. So what drives the outcomes for some of the most disadvantaged Americans and how could we try to fix that? What policy levers could we pull to try to improve that? And if you're interested in that question in the US, it's almost impossible to ignore what's happening in the justice system because there's just so much concentrated inequality that people interact um, at the bottom of, of that income distribution just tend to interact with the justice st- system all the time. I mean, one motivating fact I have in this paper that we're going to talk about today, for example, is that if you're an African-American high school dropout, you're about as likely to be in prison as you are working a full-time job at any at any given point in time. So it seemed to me that if we want to understand inequality, especially at the bottom, we have to understand what's going on in the justice system and how it interacts with labor markets, educational institutions, all those all those other factors. So that's sort of what motivated my interest in this in this topic. At a, at a high level, I also, at the time I was in grad school, I was teaching at a prison in San Francisco and just talking to more people who had interacted with the justice system and hearing about their stories. And that got me more curious overall. And what I realized also that I think makes this a particularly great area to be doing policy work is that there's just tons of data that's constantly being produced by the criminal justice system that a lot of folks working in the justice system simply just don't have the time to handle. and um, But if it's accessible, and you can learn really important things from that data that can have an, a, an important and big impact on people's lives almost immediately. So it's that sort of confluence of factors that led me to my research overall, and in particular, this project about, about the probation system.
0: Very interesting. Okay, so your paper is titled, Who Gets a Second Chance? Effectiveness and Equity in Supervision of Criminal Offenders. It was published in the Quarterly Journal of Economics in 2021. And you know in the paper that most conversations about punishment in the u s. focus on prison, but there are far more people serving time in their communities on probation or parole. So how many people are on community supervision in the u s, and how has that number changed over time?
1: yeah, that's that's totally right. I think you know in the, in policy conversations and in academic work, we we fo- tend to focus on incarceration because it's such an important thing that can happen to your life, and it's such a traumatic event for for people who experience it. But the fact is that most offenders who get convicted of a crime are not going to be sent to prison, certainly a first time offender and certainly a nonviolent or a younger offender. So, something like 50% of felony defendants are going to get a probation sentence as part of their sentence. And even higher, 70, 80% for misdemeanor defendants or young or first time defendants. And so that makes the population that's serving time on community sur- supervision and probation and parole enormous and much bigger than the population that's, that's incarcerated. Most recent numbers are something like 4 million people. About three million of which is probation, and one million of which of is parole. And in case it wasn't clear, or anybody didn't have this background, parole and probation are, are very similar. They're both periods of supervision in the community. The difference is that probation tends to happen right after conviction. So you get convicted of a crime, you're sent to probation. Parole typically follows after a spell of incarceration. So it's a period of supervision in your community after you've already spent some time in prison. So about about four million, split two thirds, one third, or three quarters, one quarters between those two groups. And that's about four times the population I think that's about in state and prisons today. And that's a number that's declined a little bit uh, since about you know, 2010 when those numbers peaked in tandem with the slight declines in incarceration that we've seen in the last decade or so. But it's also a number that just sort of ramped up and at pace with the incarceration rates in the U.S. since the starting in the 70s or 80s. So as those same trends were happening and those uh, incarcerated populations were, were growing really quickly, so true. Were these populations of the people who are under uh, community control in, in probation and, and uh,
0: parole. Okay. So how does community supervision work? And you mentioned you know, this parole and there's probation. You're going to focus on probation in this paper. I think they both basically work the same way. So maybe not worth distinguishing here, uh, but how does it work and what are the consequences if you don't follow the rules?
1: Totally. Yeah. So the think about community supervision, I think I'm not alone in this is a sort of a second chance sentence, which is where the title of the paper comes from. So Formally, what will often happen is a judge will sentence you to a prison spell, but then suspend that sentence in lieu of incarceration. And what's happening is you're being asked to accept this bargain where you're going to be spared the prison sentence that you might have otherwise gotten in exchange for following a set of rules over the next two, three, sometimes four or five years. And uh, the consequences for breaking those rules can be very severe. It can involve um, you know, lengthening your probation spell. It can involve extra fees and fines. But most seriously, it can involve activating that suspended sentence. And when that's happened, that's called getting your probation revoked. And the judge basically says, look, you've broken this contract here. We're going to revoke your probation. And we're going to give you that suspended sentence, when I, that I, the sentence that I suspended when I gave you the second chance. And those rules that you are asked to follow on probation can depend a lot on the context and the judge and the crime you've committed. But they include a fairly typical set of, of requirements that most people on probation are going to be asked to, to follow. That includes you know paying back your fees and fines. So there's you know, court processing fees and sort of regular cost of doing business fees that you're going to be assessed just as part of your conviction. There's usually a fee just for being on probation itself, somewhere on the order of $40 to $50 that you'd pay in North Carolina, for example. And any restitution that was ordered as part of your case as a condition of your probation, you're going to be required to pay those fees and fines. You also, because you're being supervised on probation, you have to meet with the person who's supervising you. So you'll be assigned to a caseworker, and you'll have weekly or monthly meetings with that caseworker where they'll check in on how you're doing and if you're fulfilling all uh, all the terms and conditions of your probation sentence. There's drug and alcohol testing. There's restrictions on your travel. There's sometimes curfews. There's sort of a long list of of different conditions that a judge might uh, impose. But talk a little bit about this later. Definitely the most important ones are on the drug and alcohol testing, the fees and fines, and then just showing up to these meetings with um, uh, your probation officer. So that's what you're asked to do. If you can break those rules, you can get punished by having your suspended sentence activated. Formally, the way that happens is if you break one of these rules, your probation officer, the person supervising you, will, uh, you know, file a violation, violation of probation. Then you go to a hearing before the judge. In most places, what happens is the probation officer will recommend a consequence. So I think this is serious enough that we should revoke and this person should should now be incarcerated. And usually the judge will agree and and that's what will happen.
0: So what are the goals of all of this? What are the goals of community supervision broadly and of incarcerating the people who break the rules? How might these policies affect criminal behavior?
1: Yeah, I think... Generally, the way people talk about the the goals of this, super, of this whole regime are twofold. So first, there's a surveillance motivation to these probation rules. The idea is that we've identified people who've you know, committed some social harm, committed a crime, we're giving them a second chance, but we think some of them might be particularly risky and pose a public safety danger. So if we'd have them in prison, then we'd obviously, you know, that person would probably be incapacitated, but on probation, they're back in their community. But we want to still keep a close eye on them, and these rules are one way to do that. So obviously, making sure that somebody's coming to a weekly meeting is one way to make sure that somebody hasn't absconded and gone to another state, for example, where maybe they might get into some sort of trouble. Asking people to abstain from drugs and alcohol is, again, motivated in the same way. We want to make sure that people are taking rehabilitation seriously and committed to um, reengaging and reentering society. So the idea is that if people are breaking these rules, then we can use that sort of as a flag for people who are maybe particularly risky and as an early warning system, and then we could shift those people from probation to prison where maybe they'd be incapacitated and unable to commit a particularly socially costly crime. So that's the surveillance motivation. The other motivation I think is simply more directly focused on rehabilitation. The idea is that following these rules is good for you so we think that one way to desist from crime is to also desist from drugs and alcohol, for example, or to be um, secure, gainful employment, which is often, by the way, another important condition of probation. So we want to punish people harshly when they break these rules just to encourage compliance. Like, we're going to threaten you with revoking your probation if you fill your drug test to make sure that you actually try to pass your drug test and, and you don't abstain. But that's sort of the broad view. I mean, in in the legislature, in the, in the law, the way these, the rules are written are incredibly broad. In fact, in North Carolina, I think, the statute says something like, you could impose any rule on probation that's reasonably necessary to ensure that the defendant will lead a law-abiding life or assist them in doing so. And that can create some ambiguity. And I'm sure you've heard of this case of uh, Meek Mill, this famous rapper who had fought this decade-long battle over his probation case, where it's sort of turned into a personal battle with the judge. And you know, the violation, the thing that Meek Mill had done at the end that actually ended up in his probation getting revoked was riding a dirt bike uh, in New York City without a helmet which is probably not a particularly good tag for somebody who was about to go on to commit a socially costly crime. I mean, this guy was a very successful rapper and probably also dirt bike riding without a helmet is not a great <laughs> signal of whether or not somebody's rehabilitating very soon. But one thing I should mention is that this, this use of the surveillance modi- motivation and the, the use of prison to sort of encourage compliance, it's super common. So I didn't say this earlier, but a lot of probationers getting in trouble and a lot of their probationers are getting their probation revoked. Uh, For violation of these rules, so in North Carolina, for example, before this reform we're going to talk about today, something like forty percent of the people just entering the gates of prison were people who were on probation and had been sent to prison without any new criminal conviction. So they weren't arrested and then prosecuted again for some new crime and sent to prison. Result: so that means they broke some of these rules and ultimately got revoked. And that doesn't seem to be North Carolina didn't seem to be a particular outlier. Uh, Probably about half of prison entries nationally according to some survey evidence from the Council of State Governments, are coming from these violations of probation and parole with no new criminal conviction. And about 25% of that are probably for, or 25% of all those entries, of, of total entries, so about half of those entries in probation and parole, are coming from people who are getting revoked just for breaking one of these technical rules. So a rule that something that you're doing that's only illegal in the sense because you're on probation and that you and I could probably do with impunity, like you know, staying out after 9 p.m. or socializing with particular people or remaining unemployed if we want to. So it's important to understand whether or not probation is accomplishing these two goals, the surveillance and rehabilitation motive, because we're spending a lot, a lot of money and interrupting a lot, a lot of people's lives by you know, handing down this very serious consequence of incarcerating them when they break these rules. So, uh, on the probation spells.
0: So what did we previously known before you started this paper about whether all of this is actually having its intended effect?
1: Yeah, lots of stuff um, is known and I hope my paper um, can help build on that. And I'll try to explain how. I mean, one thing that the literature has been focused on that I know, Jen, you've worked on too, is about thinking about the intensity of supervision so do we, when we have probation, we have a choice, we could sort of check up with you maybe every day, or we could check up with you every month, or we could drug test you every day or drug test you every month. Is it better to have really more intensive supervision relative to relative not? And there's been a series of interesting RCTs that have tried to ask that question, randomizing people between more intensive and less intensive probation regimes. And there, I think, and maybe this is you can correct me if this is not your reading, but my reading of that analysis is that it seems like more intensive probation is not particularly good for offenders. And I think that's going to be consistent with what I'm showing here is that a lot of these technical rules, they, they, yes, as we'll get into later, they do seem to serve some at least surveillance function, but it's not enormous um, and it has important differences in its impacts across race groups. But one of the focuses I'm going to have in this paper is trying to think about how we can separate those two motivations. And a lot of these RCTs, what you might see is that like incarceration will go up for people who are given more intensive supervision, that sort of mixes two things, right? One, one is sort of the behavioral response to being on more intensive supervision, but also the fact that when you're on more intensive supervision, you're just more likely to get caught doing something that the probation system uses as untoward. And so an important way I'm going to try to build on that literature is by thinking exactly, well, what's actually happening to behavior and what's actually happening to rule violations and incarceration for all this technical stuff that you can't do under probation? The other thing that a literature that I think this paper connects to is the work on trying to understand how we should structure punishments for the conditions of either probation or parole, or even a pretrial setting. So I'm sure everybody's familiar with the famous like HOPE trials in Hawaii with the swift and certain punishments, arguing that if we can make the punishment uh, not only serious, but also very, very uh, immediate relative to the behavior, and then also uh, very high probability so that people aren't sure whether it's going to happen or not, maybe that will also help people um, adhere more closely to the to the things we'd like them to. And although, as, you, as many other people also know, the replication of those hope experiments has proved difficult in other sites as well, but my paper is going to speak to this as well by sort of just asking, okay, well, this is a very severe punishment that we're leavening down for people for not complying with these rules. It may not be swift. Sometimes it can take weeks for it to happen, but it can be pretty certain. And for some people, it means years and years of incarceration. And so we're, again, this is another piece of evidence thinking about, okay, well, how how does the threat of punishment actually affect behavior or not, as it turns out to in this particular case?
0: So you're right that there are a bunch of other studies out there on community supervision. But I also generally think of this topic as a space where the evidence base about what we should do, like how to do community supervision effectively, is just remarkably thin like we essentially know nothing <laughs> we we know a lot about what, like what's not working like giving people more intensive supervision is not any more effective than giving them less intensive supervision but you know so that's not a great start so what's the hold up here why why has there been so much less work in this area is this mostly a data availability challenge is it mostly an identification challenge what do you think the problems are
1: yeah I think there's a few things. And let me just say, I completely agree that this is like an area where we should all be doing more work. I mean, I came into this project actually, because I was writing papers about the effects of incarceration. And when you think about the effects of incarceration, well, you have to think, okay, relative to what? And when people aren't sentenced to prison, they're usually put on probation. So of course, like thinking about what incarceration does to people, it only matters, you You have to understand what's going on in this counterfactual. And uh, that's why, I was, you know, realize that I think we don't really understand what's happening in this counterfactual where people are serving probation and parole sentences and how we can make it better. And I think the reasons for that are a fewfold. One is that although I mentioned earlier that criminal justice data is accessible um, to grad students and researchers and policymakers, and it's generally easier to get than like restricted health data or something like that, data on probation and parole is a little bit trickier because it's not the standard court data. We're talking about stuff that happens after your conviction when you've been sent to a different part of the system where somebody's going to supervise you over the course of many months. So if you were to sort of request the court records from Harris County, Texas, or some other large county, this kind of information would typically not be contained there because a lot of those records sort of ha- record what happens to somebody from arrest through conviction, but not the sentencing regime afterwards. And having a good understanding of that is important because as we're going to discuss, like, you know, probation is not a sort of one size fits all treatment. It's got a lot of different flavors and a lot of different elements that matter. So you have to get more detailed data than a lot of uh, papers uh, analyzing criminal justice policy typically use. The other reason why I think it's hard to understand the impact of stuff like revokes for technical rules is that the causal inference problem is really challenging. So like, let's just take this surveillance motivation that I mentioned earlier. What we want to know is when we revoke somebody for breaking curfew, is that somebody who was going to pose an imminent public safety risk which might have made it worthwhile to pull them off probation and put them in incarceration. But of course the problem is when you revoke somebody you don't get to see what would have happened had you not done that. Right? So it's analogous to the bail problem where when we detain people pre-trial we don't get to see whether or not they would have failed to appear. You have the exact same issue here where the outcomes you care about crime um, impacts on employment, whatever, they're censored by the things that are happening in the probation system when people get pulled off, uh, off the regime and into prison. So you need some sort of way to deal with that. And that requires looking at a reform or developing some kind of in- instrument, which is the you know strategy that I ended up taking in this paper.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that strategy. So in, in this paper, you focus on a 2011 policy change in North Carolina that reduced the use of incarceration as a punishment for violations of some probation rules. So tell us more about that reform. What did it do and who did it affect?
1: Great. Yeah. So this reform um, was part of a package of changes that North Carolina made in in 2011. Formerly it was called the Justice Reinvestment Act. The Motivation was partly that North Carolina was looking at some actuarial tables that showed that their prison population was going to keep growing at the rate things were going and that it was going to get incredibly expensive to to house um, everybody that the state wanted to incarcerate. So they were motivated um, to find ways to reduce the prison population in the future. And in collaboration with the council state governments, actually, what North Carolina, to its credit, realized was that they were spending a lot of money incarcerating folks for these kind of technical violations. I gave you the statistic earlier, about 40% of prison spells coming from these technical violations. So what the state wanted to do was reduce that in the hopes of reducing prison spending Part of the idea was that they could take that money and just save it, but also part of the idea was that they could take that money and reinvest it in other parts of the system, better supervision. There was almost no parole supervision in North Carolina, for example, so they instituted a parole regime as part of that. So there was a couple different changes, but for the purposes of our conversation and, and the, the questions we're asking here, By far, the most consequential change was this reduction in the revokes for these technical violations of probation. And formally, what the rule said was, okay, if you violate any probation rule after December 1st, 2011, then we're only going to let you revoke that person's probation if they've actually committed a new crime that they could otherwise be convicted for anyways, or they've absconded. Meaning that this person is just lost, and typically when that happens, you put a warrant out for their arrest, and they get picked up, you know, rel- relatively quickly. But no more revokes for failing a drug test, no more revokes for breaking a curfew, no more revokes for, you know, associating with the wrong characters, and definitely no more revokes for failing to pay those important fees and fines that a lot of uh, probationers were required to.
0: And then, so who did it, who did it affect? Did it affect everyone on probation?
1: Yes. Sorry. So that change. Uh, Affected everybody on uh, supervised probation. So I should have mentioned this earlier. If I did not, but there's kind of two flavors of probation at a high level. One is called supervised. Everybody is technically subject to the same rules, but supervised probation means that you're actually somebody's watching you and making sure you're doing it. So for most misdemeanor offenders and for felony offenders, that will end up what 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 will happen. You have some period of supervised probation where you're assigned a probation officer. For some low-level misdemeanor offenders and certainly a lot of like criminal traffic offenders, you might get unsupervised probation where so long as you keep paying your fees and fines, you know, eventually your probation will will expire and you'll have successfully completed your sentence, but you're not going to be required to check in with a probation officer every month and you won't be um, supervised in, in that way directly. So technically that reform affected everybody, but it really only mattered for the people on supervised probation because those are for the people for whom these rules are actually really binding.
0: Yeah. Those are the only people who got caught before basically.
1: Yes. Exactly. I mean, for example, for drug testing, you know, you were not going to be drug tested on unsupervised probation. And that's actually useful for me because we want to analyze this reform. We want to understand what it did to the probation population and their outcomes. One thing we could do is just look before and after. And I do that in the paper. But you also might want to develop some sense of a control group because maybe, you know, time trends and arrests are changing or whatever over time. And this unsupervised probation is useful as a control group because it's a population that looks a lot like the people who were affected by the reform. They all committed crimes too, but this change in revokes really didn't have any impact on on their outcomes. And in the paper, what I end up doing is both of those types of analysis, the pre-post and then the diff and diff.
0: Okay, great. So step us through that a little bit more, the identification strategy and the diff and diff in particular. So give us, give us the intuition for what you're doing there.
1: Yeah. So I mentioned earlier that like the, the tricky causal inference problem in the setting is that when people get revoked, we don't get to see what would have happened otherwise. We don't get to see whether or not they would have committed crime. So that you can think about those outcomes as sort of just being censored by this revocation event. And what's helpful about this reform is it dramatically reduced revokes for all these technical violations because it made judges unable to revoke uh, probation anymore for breaking one of these technical rules. So intuitively, what that means is you've got this population who before would have been revoked, but after the reform, they're not going to get revoked anymore. And we can use that to think about, okay, well, how much crime would those people who counterfactually would have been revoked before the reform committed had they not been revoked uh, to begin with? So in the language of econometrics, what, what we're talking about here is just using this reform as an instrument for whether or not somebody's somebody get revo- gets revoked and then trying to measure the treatment effect of being not revoked, which in this case just means how much crime you would commit in the regime, in, a, in the state of the world where you're not revoked to begin with. And you can do that, as I mentioned, just in the simple kind of pre post analysis. We can just sort of ask, like, compare arrest rates before the reform to after the reform, and then argue if they went up, that must be because we were revoking fewer people. You might be concerned that there's some sort of time trend in arrest that confounds that. Maybe, like, in fact, over this period, arrests are declining very slightly in general in North Carolina maybe you don't want to mix up the effect of the reform with the effect those time trends. You might want to build in this control group. The diff and diff analysis is just one way of doing that. What we're doing is just saying, well, let's use this other group of unsupervised probationers to measure how much crime is just changing in general, and then just subtract that off from the change we measure for this group of supervised probationers who are really affected by the reform. And that lets us purge that estimate of any of these sort of confounding effects of a general time trend.
0: Okay, so what data do you have for all of this?
1: Yeah, so we used, um, I was lucky to get administrative data from um, North Carolina. I'm a Tar Heel, so I think when I email people... (laughs) in North Carolina and tell them I went to Chapel Hill I get a I get a speedier response.
0: <laughs> it's a pro tip there research students. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Go to UNC for many reasons. <laughs> so, I'm using admin data from North Carolina and um, I was able through a research agreement with the Department of Public Safety to get spell level data about probationers. So for everybody who's sentenced to probation I saw when they started, when they ended probation, all the violations that happened over the course of their spell, and then all how those violations were disposed. So in particular, whether or not you know maybe the judge just said, okay, you got this violation, we're going to give you another shot, don't break any more rules, or whether the judge actually said, okay, now we're going to revoke probation uh, this time. So all that spell level data. I combined that data with data from the administrative office of the courts, which you can think of as just sort of a census of arrests in the state of North Carolina by regular law enforcement. So the combination of those two things, which were linked on the basis of like name and date of birth and gender and race information, lets us measure these two sort of sets of important outcomes. One, the crime side, how many people are actually being arrested for criminal activity. And then second, the probation side, what kind of probation rules are people breaking? And then what are the consequences they're suffering for breaking those those probation rules?
0: Okay. And I think you mentioned this a couple of times, but just so we have it all in one place, let's repeat this. So for those on probation in your sample, What types of crimes were they typically convicted of, and how long is a typical probation sentence?
1: Yeah, great. So the short answer is all types of crimes, but less serious crimes than you would see if you were looking at a population that's sentenced to prison. So about 40% of the offenders in in my sample are convicted of a felony offense. About 30% of misdemeanor offense. The rest is sort of criminal traffic offenses. Um, A big chunk of that is driving-related offenses, so about 20% of the offenders have some sort of either driving while intoxicated or driving with a revoked license type offense, which is, first of all, a very very common offense overall and one of the offenses that's most likely to lead to probation. And the average spell length depends on whether or not you're convicted of a felony or misdemeanor. For for felons, the um, length of supervision is anywhere from one to three years, some very rarely longer. For misdemeanor offenders, it can be quite short on the order of like three or four or five months. In the sample overall, what we see you know the average length just mixing across everybody in the data is is about 20 months. That's long, especially because one, one important other piece of context maybe to think and keep in mind here is that if you're a relatively low level felony offender in North Carolina, suppose you were convicted of a drug offense, your probation sentence might last two or three years. If the judge had sentenced you to prison and said you may be looking at a couple months four or five months. So in one sense, it's a blessing that you've been spared this prison sentence, but you're going to be dealing with this probation regime for for a very long time. And actually, one of the things you see is that when people break these rules, they get probation revoked. But when they don't revoked, it's not uncommon at all for judges just to extend the probation sentence altogether. And that's one of the ways you get these cases where individuals have been serving probation sentences for a decade, like Meek Mill was at the time that his case exploded. Because these things can be sort of sequentially lengthened over time as a result of either, you know, having outstanding fees and fines or other violations along
0: the way. So how often do the probationers in your sample in North Carolina commit technical violations of their rules and which technical violations are most common?
1: Yeah, very often. So in the data I'm working with, something like 60% of spells just have any violation for any reason. Of course, many people rack up a lot of violations over the course of their spell, but 60% of of them have any violation. Among the violations that people get, by far the most common is a violation for non-payment of fees and fines. That's about a third of all violations on probation and happens in basically 50% of spells. It's like half of probationers are getting dinged at some point for not paying back the fees and court-ordered fees and fines as part of their sentence, as well as these probation fees that you're required to pay. After that, there's sort of a long tail of other violations that are quite common. So not reporting is the second most common violation. Again, that just means like you're missing your your weekly meeting or monthly meeting with your probation officer. That's about 13% of violations. It happens in like 30% of spells. Next comes drug testing, then absconding, which means not only you're not showing up, but the probation officers don't even know where you are. And then only then do you see people getting a violation for an actual allegation of new criminal conduct after all uh, all of those different violations. Then there's just an extraordinarily long right tail of, frankly, sometimes seemingly random violations that are hard to understand how they came about and and when they were used. Two percent of spells, for example, have a violation for just admitting drug use, which means that you know you weren't you weren't even tested, but just through the course of a conversation with your with your probation officer, you you admitted drug use. Six percent of spells have something like a or something like six percent of spells have a violation for not having a job altogether, and. The way you should think about this happening is that you know, when I was actually developing this project, I spent a bunch of time in Durham just watching the probation officers and the probation there interact with their caseload and how they do their job. I kind of thought of probation officers initially as working more like a police officer, kind of walking their beat, managing their caseload with a lot of discretion. In practice, I think what often happens is you know, most probation officers, first of all, they're supervising something like 50 to 70 or 80 people. It's an enormous amount of people to keep tabs on at any given time. And so their day is just a lot of meetings where people come into the office, you sort of say hello and greet them briefly, and then you sort of run through this checklist. checklist. Like, oh, are you staying in your drug treatment program? Have you been in school this week? If that's what you're doing, have you found a job? And they sort of tick through. And then when people fail to meet any of those obligations, then they file off the violation report and off it goes. So it's an interesting sort of bureaucra- almost bureaucratic regime that these people, the probationers and probation officers, find themselves uh, in. And of course, like it turns out that it's difficult to comply with all of those rules. So as a result, a lot of people are getting in, in trouble pretty frequently.
0: It's interesting hearing you talk about that as a really bureaucratic exercise, because I'm now thinking about kind of the Mark Kleiman, Hope story. The story, the pitch you would usually make for, for Hope is that rules under supervision are basically not enforced in any sort of regular or standardized way. And so people never knew if they were going to get in trouble. Sounds like at least in North Carolina, that is not how it works.
1: Yeah. I think um, this surprised me too. And actually when I first started working on this, particularly the racial disparities element, which, which we haven't really gotten into yet, but we will, Like, I expected the story there to be like all about discretion, that probation officers were sort of biased in an important way. But when I talk to them and interview them, and then when I read, learn more closely about how they do the job, I I don't think that's actually the best description of at least in North Carolina, how this works. It is somewhat bureaucratic Got this incredibly detailed handbook that explains how they are to do their jobs, which includes these things, I think they're called like forced response matrices or uh, like appropriate response matrices, which is basically like a big table that tells you if your probationer has done this and you've done ABC, then do this. And then if you've done that, do that. And then they sort of work through those things and as as they go and, and that's how it happens. And it's true that I think probationers that I've talked to as well don't fully understand the consequences, but I'm not sure that, you know, that could be coming from a, uh, an important element of discretion, but it could also just be coming from a lack of awareness about how the system works in general. And, you know, maybe it's never been explained to them. And I certainly witnessed that too. You know, there's not a ton of education often for probationers about What's required of them and the consequences for breaking these rules. Often, the sort of you know, your probation terms will be explained to you as part of your sentence, but then you might not get a lot of reminders there afterwards about how this stuff is is supposed to work.
0: Okay, so lots of people uh, get technical violations. Uh, How often are people committing new crimes?
1: Yeah, so about often as well. So I mean, just like in every other part of the justice system that we've studied, like uh, recidivism rates are are depressingly high. So the metric that I use in the paper is just to look at one-year outcomes so that we can sort of keep things consistent and clear over the course of the analysis. And there, what you see is that about 30% of probationers, 33%, are going to get arrested within a year before they get revoked for one of uh, one of these technical rule violations. And I can't remember if I mentioned this earlier, but you know that revoke outcome is also very common because people break so many rules. So something like 15 to 20% of probationers are going to get revoked in their first year before they could get a new arrest. Okay. So you add that together, it's something like you know half of probationers are either going to get revoked or arrested. The other half are going to continue on their spell and something might happen later. And then about 30% of that, 30% are going to be arrested. 20% are going to be revoked for one of these technical violations.
0: Okay. And then speaking of racial disparities, how do these different measures vary across race?
1: Yeah. There's enormous racial disparities. So Black offenders relative to non-Black offenders on probation are just significantly more likely to be subject to all of these rule violations virtually every category. So they're for example about 17 percentage points more likely to be dinged for an administrative violation which includes you know things like not showing up for your meeting or breaking curfew. They're like 6 percentage points more likely to get dinged for a drug violation. They're significantly more likely to get dinged for not paying their fees and fines. And all of that adds up to A sizable gap in the probability that you actually get revoked for one of these technical rule violations and incarcerated as a result. So the number pre-reform was something like six percentage point gap, which is something like fifty percent of the non-black mean. So it's a really large gap in the fraction of black versus non-black probationers who are being incarcerated for these for these revokes. And of course, if you think about that, what that means is combine that with the fact that a large share of the people actually going to prison are people who are breaking these technical rules on probation means that the system itself is an important driver of the racial disparities that we see in incarceration overall, because um, black offenders are so much more likely to be subject to these rule violations. And one thing that surprised me studying this is that oftentimes when you start controlling for different factors, and we can talk about whether or not you know, that's a good idea and what you should do, whether you want to control for criminal history, for example, you can shrink racial disparities because the conditional difference is sometimes smaller than the unconditional difference. And that's true here, too, but much less than I would have expected and and much less than I've seen, for example, when you look at like racial gaps in incarceration and sentencing and in this paper, for example, we're actually able to control for not just your criminal history and where you live, but we actually even had access to test scores that people from standardized tests in North Carolina public schools. And you can even control for that on the right hand side, and you still see these very large race gaps in all of these um, violation categories as well as technical revokes as well. I think the Reason why we didn't just stop there, or I didn't just stop there and say, okay, well, clearly something's wrong, is that what you also see is that black offenders on probation are more likely to be rearrested for new crimes. They're like seven percentage points unconditionally uh, more likely to be re-arrested uh, relative to that 30% number I gave you earlier. So, pretty big difference as well. And so, one reason why you might see that all these large race gaps in technical rule violations and technical revokes is that the system is set up in a way that it disproportionately impacts black probationers. And that's definitely one hypothesis. And ultimately, I think where we're going to land. But the other reason might just be that these things are serving a useful purpose, that they're tagging individuals and serving as this early warning system and and identifying people on probation who maybe pose a public safety risk. And because the risk distribution is not the same across the two populations, therefore, you see also a difference in the rate at which people are, are getting dinged for technical violations.
0: Yeah, and if that's the driver, then we have to look somewhere else to solve the problem. Um, but if it's within the, within the criminal justice system, then perhaps easier to address.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't. I definitely would not say that. You wouldn't want to stop there either yeah. if that was your conclusion, <laughs> yeah. because then you have to think about okay, well, where do those differences come from, and how much of that is upstream factors like the accumulation of criminal history or earlier human capital. And I've tried to look at some of those topics in my other in my other research as well, which maybe we can do another podcast on. Yes, at some point.
0: yes, yeah, at some point it definitely becomes a different paper. Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay, so let's get into the results. What was the effect of this 2011 reform on revocations for technical violations?
1: So it was big. What ended up happening was that the probability that you got revoked for technical violation in your first year declined by about five or six percentage points. And so that's like, you know, maybe a third or, or a quarter of the pre-reform mean. So it's a, a big shift in the, in the probability that you were going to be uh, imprisoned for breaking one of these technical rules.
0: And remind us, it wasn't all the technical rules that this applied to.
1: The only thing that was left was absconding. Okay, got it. And esconding actually revokes actually tended to be relatively rare. So, that most of the people who are getting revoked after this are getting revoked because of new criminal conduct.
0: Okay. And then the second main result what was the effect on new arrests?
1: Yeah. So, you might think that because we stopped revoking all these probationers, now they remain in the community, maybe some of them and maybe a non negligible fraction of them wound up getting rearrested instead. And that definitely happened. So, arrests went up by about two percentage points which is a small fraction relative to the overall arrest rate of about 30%. But if all that's happening is that five percentage points of people were getting shifted from being revoked to remaining in the probation, it means a relatively large fraction of those people who are getting revoked ended up getting rearrested instead.
0: Okay, so there are trade-offs here. (laughs) So as you said, there are fewer people sent to prison for technical violations. This gives affected probationers more opportunity to commit new crimes, and some of them do. So how should we think about this relative size of those effects? Were the people who committed technical violations, but now not sent to prison because of this new policy reform, more or less likely to commit a new crime than the average probationer? So how good or an indicator of risk was this?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I spend a bunch of time trying to answer that question the best that I can. And there's a few ways to think about it. The one is sort of just the math that we just went through verbally a second ago. So one thing we can ask is just like, all right, well, we know that revokes went down by five percentage points. Arrests went up by two percentage points. And if all of that increase in arrests is driven by people who would have otherwise been revoked, we can just divide the numbers and just ask, okay, well, how many of those share, what share of those people who are getting revoked would have otherwise committed a crime? Okay, so that number, you might think of that as a measure of accuracy. If we're using these, these technical rule violations as a tag for people who would commit crime if we didn't revoke them, that means that accuracy of that tag is something about 40%, 43%. So that's not zero. It's higher than the average arrest rate, which I told you was about 30% or something. So it's targeting people who are more likely to get rearrested, but not dramatically so. It's not like 100% of the people who were getting revoked would have counterfactually committed a crime. It's slightly more than what you would expect if you were just randomly picking people from the probation population. So that's accuracy, the way I think about that is like, we're just asking, okay, let's look at the revoked population and ask what their risk is. You can also flip that idea and just ask, okay, well, let's condition on risk. Let's look at people who were getting arrested or were not going to get arrested and ask how many of those people were we actually catching, so to speak, with revokes. And you can describe that as a kind of error rate. And you can do some other math, which we go through in the paper to convert these numbers into measures of these error rates. And what you see first is that the false negative rate, is enormous. So that's about 94%. What that means is that the vast, vast majority of people who are going to get arrested are not going to get caught by a technical revocation first. And the intuition for why that happens is pretty straightforward. It's that rearrest hazards or so rearrest rates are highest earlier in the spell. And it takes a while for these technical revokes to happen. You know, They happen much later in the spell. So a lot of the people who are like just not committed to rehabilitation or in a bad situation and are going to get rearrested soon. That happens like two or three months into probation. Revokes happen six or nine months later. The other dimension of error rates you can look at is the other thing where we can ask, okay, so that's how many people who would get arrested were getting revoked. How many people who would not get arrested are getting revoked? And you think about that as like a false positive rate. And that number is interesting, I think, because it sort of gives you a measure of how many people who are in some sense innocent People who would have otherwise you know, gone on to live a normal law-abiding life are getting swept up by the system because it's not a perfect tag. And that number is overall about, about 6%. And so that's not enormous. Again, it's not 80% or something. But I think it's it, whether or not we're comfortable with that kind of uh, false positive rate is, is an important policy question. So those are sort of ways of quantifying the accuracy of the system. It's hard to sort of interpret some of those numbers on on their own. I mean, we can compare accuracy to a random chance, a coin flip or something, and it's we're doing better than random chance, which is good. The other way to think about and interpret those numbers is through the lens of like a simple cost-benefit analysis. So you can ask, okay, what we're doing here is essentially is we're incarcerating people for one of these technical violations. That's expensive, but we hope that by doing so, we're reducing crime. So you can ask, like, how do we make that trade-off? And is the spending on incarceration for these technical revocations worth it in terms of the reduction you get in crime? And that's, you know, as you know, notoriously hard to do because putting numbers on the cost of crime is very difficult. Um, and when we do it, people argue about whether or not they're right and they're variable. But what I, I like to do is to think about a break-even number and just ask, okay, well, what's the minimum number I would have to put on the average cost of crime to make this regime worthwhile? And there, the number you get is about is about $40,000. So if your valuation of the marginal arrests is about $40,000, then you're roughly breaking even before the reform. If your margin valuation is higher, you'd want to undo the reform. If your marginal valuation is lower, you'd want to keep the reform. Again, whether or not $40,000 is a reasonable number is tough. But what I think is useful about that about that metric is that people have done similar calculations in a range of different contexts now. So we could ask, okay, well, how does the effectiveness of technical revokes compare to sort of just incapacitation through incarceration in general, for example, or other interventions you might have in this regime? You can also use that met- metric to sort of think about how uh, the system operates across different groups and ask, well, is this break-even number much bigger or smaller for Black offenders relative to non-Black offenders? And is there any reason to think that we should be operating a regime where the, we think the average cost of crime for Black offenders relative to non-Black offenders is, is quite different? But that's the bottom line. I think is is that forty thousand dollar number.
0: And just for reference, what types of crimes are people usually getting re-arrested for?
1: Yeah, again, a whole host. Um, so, like felony felony offenses, you know, account for uh, something like a third of the increase, I think, and the rest is some mix of of traffic and misdemeanor offenses. So they're not all serious crimes, definitely, but there are serious crimes in the mix, and I think that's one of the reasons why that cost benefit analysis is difficult. You know, the things we care the most about are the most rare. And it's very, very hard unless you've got enormous, enormous quantities of data, for example, to detect an effect on something like murders. So if you were able to avert a couple of murders using this, this really expansive technical verification regime, maybe that would be worth it. But it's just hard to say whether or not that, that is actually happening.
0: Okay. So that is all very interesting. But then it gets even more interesting when you split again by race. <laughs> so tell us about yeah. the racial differences in the reform effects.
1: Yeah, so it turns out that that five percentage point reduction in revokes is averaging a really big number for black offenders and a smaller number for non black offenders. So the probability that a black probationer was revoked for one of these technical violations declined by about seven or eight percentage points. And non black offenders, it declined by about three or four percentage points. So for half the size. And that sort of makes sense if you think about what I told you about earlier, which is just that in the data, what you see is that black offenders are just way more likely to be subject to these rule violations to begin with. So they were breaking a lot more technical rules, so therefore the scope for decreases was much bigger. But what kind of shocked me the first time that I looked at this analysis was I thought, okay, well, maybe what that means is that now we're going to see bigger arrests, increase, a bigger arrest increase in the Black relative to the non-Black population because we've shifted so many more Black offenders from being incarcerated for a technical revoke to being on probation. But kind of amazingly, what you see is that the increase in arrests for Black and non-Black offenders is about the same, roughly two and a half percentage points. And the upshot of that is if you go through all those metrics, we just went through accuracy and error rates. First of all, it means that as a tag for counterfactual offending risk, technical violations are much less accurate for black offenders relative to non-black offenders. For non-black offenders, they're actually pretty good. So there, the accuracy is something like 50 60%. For black offenders, though, it's roughly, it's almost exactly identical to the average arrest rate among black offenders. So it means that if you were going to revoke a black offender for failing a drug test or something, that has about as much information as for the future re-arrest risk as, as flipping a coin. And that race gap and accuracy is driven by these differences in error rates. And what's particularly important is this type one error. So the probability that a black offender who would not otherwise get rearrested over the course of the first year of probation is revoked for one of these technical rule violations. That's about three to four times as high in the black population relative to the non-black population. So this regime is sweeping up many more innocent, so to speak, uh, black probationers relative to non-black probationers. And if you funnel all that again through the cost-benefit analysis, what it means that if you what you have to believe, if you think that those accuracy, um, those differences in accuracy are justified by differential cost and crime across the two populations, you'd have to have a break-even valuation for black crime that's roughly twice what it would have to be for non-black crime and There's nothing in the data to support that. If anything, actually, the marginal arrests that Black offenders committed after the the increase in arrests from Black offenders relative to non-Black offenders is skewed towards less severe crimes. So they're more likely to be arrested for minor things. So I don't see any reason to think that that difference in the incidence of these revocations and the difference in the implicit cost-benefit analysis that you have to make is supported by the data.
0: Okay. Before we get too much farther, some listeners might be wondering if that 2011 reform changed underlying criminal behavior, as well as the penalties for that behavior. So we would typically expect that the threat of punishment would deter bad behavior. And so reducing that punishment might increase technical violations and perhaps new crime as well. And that would complicate things in a variety of ways. It would change the way we interpret all of this. You look into this a bit. So what do you do and what do you find?
1: Yeah, that's right. So i I. Earlier, I talked about the surveillance and the rehabilitation motive, and we've just exclusively been talking about the surveillance motivation. So let's let me tell you what I learned about the other the other side of this. So, um, one really interesting feature of this data is that the reform changed the probability that you get re- the chances you get revoked for breaking a rule, but it didn't change the rules themselves. So people still had to take drug tests, people still had to show up and to their meetings, and still had to still people had, people had to still respect curfew both before and afterwards. And that makes an interesting opportunity to sort of test for whether or not the changing the threat of punishment changed behavior, because what we can do is essentially pretend that the same rules that applied pre-reform also applied pr- post-reform. And let's just take the data, and every time somebody gets a technical rule violation, let's pretend they would have been revoked. That's what was happening you know, in the pre-reform regime, but we can just pretend that happened in the post-reform re- regime and delete the arrest that you know we got to see in the post-reform regime because that person was no longer revoked. So if you sort of artificially edit the data in that sense, you can pretend that the the change of revokes never happened and just ask, okay, well, did the incidence of crime or the incidence of violations seem to shift after the reform when the consequences changed? And what I find when, the, when I do that is the answer is, is essentially no. It seems like the rate of violations and the rate of rearrest remained unaffected by the reform, which I think is consistent with the conversation we we're having earlier about the idea that this matters a lot, but most probationers are probably relatively unaware of what the consequences for what uh, what breaking some of these rules were, or they were very much aware but simply you know didn't have the means or the time or the ability at the time to avoid you know the violation by, for example, paying their fees and fines. Now, I also use like a, a slightly more structured approach to answering this question in the paper, which is another econometric technique known as a competing hazard analysis. Essentially, the way you can think about this is that we I told you earlier about how, the, what happens on probation is that people get arrested or revoked, and those two outcomes kind of censor each other. If you get revoked, we don't get, to use your, we don't get to see if you're arrested. But there are ways for us to try to measure those latent risks while accounting for that censoring issue. And then we can ask, well, does the increase in arrest that we see after the reform, can that solely be explained by the fact that there's been a decrease in censoring? More people, Fewer people are getting revoked, given what we think we know about the arrest risk pre-reform. If the answer is yes, then that's consistent with a world where all that's happened is we kind of shifted the extent to which people were revoked, but we didn't change arrest risk. If the answer is no, then what the data is telling you is that no, it can't just be that fewer people are getting revoked. I also need the latent risk of getting arrested or committing one of these violations to be going up. And there, that analysis delivers basically the same answer. It seems that you can explain all of the patterns that we see in the data just by keeping behavior constant and changing the consequences for these violations.
0: Okay. So, last question about the results, uh, what can you say about the value of the specific probation rules? So it sounds like overall, they maybe are a good tag for some people, not others, but are some, are all rules equally ineffective (laughs) for, for where they are ineffective? Or are there some rules that are better indicators of risk than others?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And another one that it's, um, really tricky to answer with the data because the censoring problem we've been talking about where if you get revoked I don't get to see if you're arrest- if you get arrested that applies to all the rules as well. So you know if you were gonna if you got a violation for a drug off- a drug uh, violation I wouldn't get to see whether or not you would have later failed to pay fees and fines and that makes it difficult to sort of map how each of these different rule categories correlate with somebody's latent risk of, of risk and therefore you know how each of them serve as differentially useful tags for, people's public safety risk. So I answer that question by sort of layering onto that competing hazard models I described a second ago, another layer where we measure not just only the latent rearrest risk, but also people's latent probability of committing different rule violations. And then we can use the structure of that model to ask, okay, well, we know people are more likely to get rearrested. We know some people are more likely to you know, commit a drug violation than others. How are those different risks correlated? Is it really the drug violations that are a good tag and fees and fines are not and or and curfew violations and so on and so forth? And the approach that i used to do that looks a little complicated in essence it's not super complicated it's sort of just like a fixed effect type estimator we have we see people on on multiple probation spells so intuitively you can ask you know is the person who got a drug violation really quickly more quickly than everybody else in their first spell more likely to get arrested really quickly in their second spell than everybody else and if so that's evidence that those drug violations are really good tags for people who you know if you were to repeat if you were to see them again who might otherwise get rearrested. So that's the intuition for how that works. And what what you find there is that you know drug and curfew violations and um, administrative violations seem to all perform pretty similarly. But what really seems to be problematic, both as an effective tag and driving racial disparities, is these violations for non-payment of fees and fines. Ex post, I think that seems very obvious, but I think it's an important lesson because, as I mentioned earlier, that's the most important and most common category of fees and fines violations. Uh, sorry, of, of, of probation violations you see in the data. And my intuition for why this happens is that you, know, you can imagine somebody writing down these probation rules and constructing this regime and thinking about themselves or a of a modal offender. Thinking, Of course, if you're not paying your fees and fines, that's a sign that maybe you're somebody who's not taking this particularly seriously. But of course, we know that many people don't pay their fees and fines because they're just impoverished and living in disadvantaged neighborhoods and facing a whole host of challenges. And of course, the incidence of disadvantage is not the same across these two populations. So when you start dinging people for fees and fines violations, you end up sweeping up a lot more Black offenders who are really not paying, not because they're not committed to living a law-abiding life, but just simply because they don't have the money. And that drives a lot of these racial disparities.
0: So what are the policy implications of all of these results? What should any policymakers and practitioners listening take away from your study?
1: Yeah, I think the, the the policy implications are almost directly connected to the results we just went through. So one thing is like, I think North Carolina deserves applause for this reform and for thinking hard about what they're doing in their probation regime. And this motivation, this move for justice reinvestment has not been isolated to North Carolina and other states have been implementing similar reforms to think about Should we reduce the incidence of these technical violations? There's still a lot of states where technical uh, revocation for technical violations is basically unrestricted and can happen for any sort of behavior on probation. I think that's a a, a really good opportunity for policymakers to think carefully about: Should we really be doing this? Do we really want to, for example, be hauling probationers to prison for you know uh, a marijuana violation or uh, a fees and fines violation? I think the other the other implication is that, you know, you should be thinking, I think we have so policy measures also be thinking hard about how they want to make these trade-offs. You know, this is an example where the rules you're using are accomplishing something in the sense that they're reducing crime, but they're also having these really important disparate impacts. So North Carolina was able to eliminate this race gap essentially in technical revokes at the cost of slightly higher arrest rates on the on the on the probation population. Whether or not you're willing to pay that price, I think, depends on how you value achieving racial equity in the justice system relative to the cost of crime. But certainly it motivates asking, okay, well, is there some alternative instrument we could use? Maybe we could reduce technical revokes, but you know, increase other services in a way that would offset those arrests and let us achieve both these, both these goals simultaneously. But either way, I think for policymakers, it's critical to look at this aspect of the justice system as a contributor to the racial disparities that they're seeing in their system and think about whether or not there's simple policy changes that could be made. I mean, North Carolina made these changes with a stroke of a pen. It didn't require retraining judges or doing anything complicated or difficult. It was just a straight up policy change. and had an enormous and really positive impacts for a lot, a lot of people.
0: Have any other papers related to this topic come out since you first started working on this study?
1: Yeah, I mean, so one paper I should have mentioned earlier, if I hadn't already, it was Ryan Sakota has a really nice paper from back in 2019, which the conclusions from which are remarkably similar to mine. Ryan is, um, was analyzing, I think it's in Kansas, a reform to a parole regime, which basically reaches the same conclusion that if you stop revoking people on parole for these technical violations, then you're going to see a big reduction in racial disparities and not an enormous increase in arrests. So I think that there's other, other papers out there that suggest that the findings here are not sort of a North Carolina-specific thing, that this might be something about sort of the general way that, that community supervision is structured nationally. Um, and that, again, that suggests maybe there's opportunities for reform in, in other states as well. The other um, papers that I think are related that are important is that we are used to thinking about, especially as economists, racial disparities as coming through the results of overt discrimination. You know, a judge is biased. A probation officer is biased, and therefore they're throwing the book at one group relative to another. But sociologists and others, for a long time, have been arguing that institutions and rules can be biased in some sense. And I think this paper was offering one way of kind of formalizing that idea through this idea of sort of you know, a notion of disparate impact. You don't even need the probation officers to be to be racially motivated, motivated by any racial bias. The rules themselves, of course, make no mention of race, but you can have these really important disparate impacts simply because the impact of the rules is different across groups because people are different across groups. And I think that is an idea that I see exploding in the recent literature, this idea of sort of disparate impact more generally, you know, whether it's like Conrad Miller and Ben Feigenberg's works about, about stops or other people working on bail. Um, and I think that that is an area where there should be more work in the future and especially thinking about... Are there other policy changes that could have a big impact on racial disparities through this disparate impact channel? And one of the reasons why I'm so interested in that is that you know, if you're seeing a lot of racial disparities because people have deep-seated animus, that seems hard to change. It's hard to convince somebody that they're wrong about you know, any sort of bigoted views. But if you're seeing racial disparities because your rules are just maybe not, maybe not that carefully thought through, that's something you can change very easily. And I think this reform is a good illustration of that. And I think there's other papers that have touched on that idea more recently as well.
0: And what's the research frontier? What are the next big questions in this area that you and others are going to be thinking about in the years ahead?
1: There's a ton of questions that I think are really important. We mentioned earlier, this is an area that is in desperate need of research. So if you're a grad student listening to this, jump in. But, you know, so one question I think is very important is, you know, my analysis of the types of rules that are more effective is interesting, but pretty crude. You know, I was sort of looking at fees and fines versus drug testing. There's a lot of interesting questions about not only which types of rules we should be using on community supervision but how they should be structured. So an incredibly important if we're going to think about rules requiring people to pay fees and fines for example is how those fees and fines are or are or are not targeted towards people's income. Wisconsin for example, I know recently in their parole and probation regime has been trying to make fine payment proportional to some measure of income, to try to eliminate some of these fees and you know, if you know somebody can pay and they're not paying, maybe that's a more useful tag than just, you know, somebody who's not paying because they're, because they're too poor. And, you know, there's been other experiments about this in the U.S. that have been for, largely forgotten, like the Wisconsin day fine or the Staten Island day fine experiments, and the Milwaukee day fine experiments. But it's a very popular idea in Scandinavian countries to sort of allocate fees and fines as a proportion of income. And those kind of ideas, I think, could be explored. have a lot of potential here. The other thing, open question that I think we touched on earlier is about discretion. So we talked about these probation officers as um, sort of bureaucratic in how they do their job. Maybe that's not the way it should go. You know these probation officers have a lot of insight into their caseload. They live in these communities. Maybe if we gave them more discretion about which offenders um, should be getting violations and which is not, that'd be better. On the other hand, maybe that would you know have some unintended consequences in terms you might let more bias out into the system and other pieces. But we really don't know because we haven't done any experiments about that. Um and also these, you know probation officers, they get, my understanding is relatively little feedback about their job. There's no value added for probation officers, for example, like we have been studying for decades in uh, econ about teachers now. So I think trying to understand variation in probation officer quality would be important. And the last thing I'll say that I think is the frontier is just like, should we have probation at all? (laughs) Like, is this actually, I mean, there's a huge push towards decarceration. We have to think about shifting to what? And is this the system we want? Or do we want something that's way more light touch And then how do we measure that to begin with? And that's an enormously complicated question for all the causal inference reasons, but also just for all these measurement reasons, is that when somebody's not on probation, we have a lot less insight into what they're doing. Maybe they actually are committing quite a bit of crime, but they're just simply getting caught a lot less, and maybe that's a problem. But I wouldn't read my paper as saying that probation is the way to go. I think that's very much still an open question. Do we want supervision at all relative to, to either not doing it or something else that we haven't even imagined yet?
0: My guest today has been Evan Rose from the University of Chicago. Evan, thank you so much for talking with me.
1: Thanks, this was really fun.
0: You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures and our other contributors for supporting the show. Probable Causation is produced by Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit. If you enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El Sheik. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon.